looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussions and analysis, plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics. And today, we're going to be diving into the 49ers preseason loss to the Raiders in Las Vegas. I'm going to give some thoughts. We're going to go over the good, the bad, and the Lance, in addition to some thoughts about if this was the last preseason game, where would things stand? And of course, because 49er Twitter is melting down, there are some bad Twitter takes that I want to share. In the plus section, we're going to be talking briefly some CFL football and how that led to a naming discussion that I wanted to have, meaning team names that have been eliminated specifically the Washington Commanders toying around with bringing back the Redskins nickname which is a bad idea for multiple reasons foundation season two sci-fi fantasy series on Apple plus we are halfway through the season want to talk about and recommend that to all of you in addition to once again Chernobyl on HBO Max since that series shares a lead actor with Foundation. And lastly, I wanted to give a review for the 12-issue comic book series Far Sector by a, by a Hugo Award-winning author that I thought was fantastic and a new take on the, Grand, the Green Lantern mythos, or at least a new Green Lantern character in particular. But like always, it starts with the 49ers, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! And oh boy, you would think the sky is falling on social media, especially Twitter, a platform that I rarely engage in because there's really way too much hyperbole and stupidity after just one preseason game. But it's something worth talking about. And since it's preseason in the NFL, this is technically preseason for the 49ers Plus podcast as we roll into the regular season. I'm going to treat this like a regular season game, meaning giving the stats, really only the 49ers stats like I did last season. But if you didn't know already, the 49ers lost 34 to 7 at Las Vegas. A lot of 49er fans in the stands, maybe more Niner fans than Raider fans or awfully close. Now, the 49ers had two joint practices with Las Vegas leading up into the game. And by all accounts, the 49ers on both sides of the ball, both offensive and defensive lines, they were bullied by the Raiders. And that seemed to carry over into the preseason game as well. Now, stat-wise, we're going to dive into at least this first one, Trey Lance, 10 of 15 for 112 yards, one touchdown and two near interceptions, a 111 rating, which is wildly deceiving. Sam Darnold, 5 of 8 for 84 yards. Kyle Allen, 5 of 8 for 36 yards. Ty Davis Price at running back um, ran the ball for 29 total yards, 3.2 yards per carry. Uh, Jordan Mason, 5 for 15 
Um, Ronnie Bell on a jet sweep, one for 15. Jeremy McNichols, newly signed four for seven. And Kalen Laborn, undrafted rookie free agent out of Marshall, one for zero yards. The team, they ran 23 times for 69 yards, three yards per carry. Receivers, rookie Ronnie Bell for Michigan led the way, three for 58. Chris Conley, three for 47. Tight end Ross Dwelly, three for 18 and a wild touchdown. Tight end Troy Fumagalli, two for 30. Rookie Isaiah Winstead, two for 22. Second year player Tay Martin, receiver, two for 15. And rookie tight end Cameron Latou, one for nine and a fumble. On defense, second year linebacker Marcelino McCrary Ball led the way with six tackles, along with rookie linebacker Jalen Graham with six. Samuel Womack at corner with four. Jair Brown, rookie safety with four. And Cleland Farrell, acquisition from the Raiders had the only sack on the day. Kickoffs since Ray Ray McLeod is injured. Ronnie Bell and Deshaun Jamison handle those. They average 19 each per return. Punt returns were between Bell, Jamison, and McNichols, and really no one did anything there. Rookie kicker Jake Moody, introductory preseason game to forget, 0 for 2 from 40 and 58 yards. But most importantly, The 49ers get out of this game with no injuries, and they got valuable reps for all their young players. When I spoke about injuries going into the game, Ray Ray McLeod in a joint practice with the Raiders broke his wrist. He's out for up to eight weeks, which is why Ronnie Bell and Deshaun Jameson were handling punt return and kick return duties. George Kittle, hip strain, he's out for about a week. Dre Greenlaw, hamstring, about the same Darryl Luter Jr. is on pup with the knee issue. And Jalen Moore, who had been out for a while with the knee issue, did play. And like the entire offensive line, did not play that well. Let's start with the good. Rookie Ronnie Bell, like I mentioned, his stat line, 3 for 58 receiving, 1 for 15 rushing. Did have a ball, high pass, but easily catchable, go through his hands. That led to an interception and did contribute on kick and punt returns. Kyle Shanahan was part of the good, but only for this. He won a challenge early in the game that was similar to the NFC Championship game when Devonta Smith made a catch down the sideline inside the San Francisco 10-yard line, which was not a catch, but he did not challenge and led to an Eagles touchdown. Similar play, a sideline pass, a nice attempt, a diving attempt by a Raiders receiver, was not caught. Shanahan was on top of it with the challenge flag and the play came back. So Shanahan, in my mind anyway, learning from a deep diving catch that was not and got the challenge flag out quickly to negate a long game. Cleland Farrell in limited duty played well, good holding the edge on some run plays, Um, And a good quick swim move. He's not known for a quick first step, but did beat the left tackle for a sack in the first half. In the secondary, Ambry Thomas and Samuel Womack, both pretty good in coverage and also in run support. Now that's good to see since Charverius Ward and Diamador Lenore are the starters. A good first outing in terms of, of at least for Thomas, who had really a forgettable forgettable sophomore season and was behind Womack on the depth chart, but knowing that Dara Luter is waiting, fifth-round draft pick, although he is on pup, and undrafted rookie free agent Deshaun Jamison out of Texas has been getting a lot more notoriety in training camp and joint practices than Ambry Thomas. Thomas had to feel good 
about his performance last night in the preseason game. And Sam Darnold and Kyle Allen both looked decisive. They were both five of eight, which was around where they've been in training camp and joint practices against the Raiders. And Sam Darnold, again, you know, Kyle Shanahan and a lot of other journalists and people out there who know quarterbacks more than I do, more than 49er fans do, more than 49er content creators do. They know that he is a good thrower of the football. He just sometimes has those costly mistakes like Jimmy G does, but a better arm than Jimmy G. If he can get down the timing and the anticipation of Kyle Shanahan's offense, which again, we know takes two years to feel really comfortable. And this is just Darnold and Kyle Allen's first year in the system. They both looked pretty comfortable and pretty sharp. And Darnold's first completion was a nice 38 yard I don't want to say bomb, nearly bomb down the sideline to Ronnie Bell, put it beautifully over his shoulder in the bread basket for a nice 38-yard gain. That concludes the good. And how much does it matter, right? It's preseason game one. Kyle puts more stock in practices. They practiced two straight days against the Raiders. So there is some familiarity there, not to the point that you should get dominated 34-7, but it still is a preseason game that you you want to take more good out of games than bad. There was just not as much good as there were as there was bad. Overall, the run defense bad, especially in the first quarter. They were gashed by second year running back out of Georgia, uh, Zamir White. Overall, thirty five rushes. They gave up one hundred twenty yards. Average, not terrible. Three point four yard average, but the volume. And the over 120 yards obviously did take a toll on the defense overall, but they really did get gashed in that first half. Pass defense, not great when you have fourth-round rookie Aiden O'Connell out of Purdue looking calm, looking comfortable, looking like a seasoned veteran, 15 of 18, 141 yards, and a touchdown. Again, preseason game one, how much do you want to take out of that? I don't know. Again, no one's playing starters, but it is curious when a fourth round rookie looks better than who the 49ers started on their end. And we'll get to that momentarily. The offensive line gave up four sacks in total, all to Trey Lance all, all when Trey Lance was quarterbacking, excuse me, and at least nine quarterback hurries on top of that on 31 total pass attempts. Backup offensive line. Not the starters. But still, the backup O-line is going up against the Raiders' backup D-line. And they kind of got manhandled, at least in the first half. Darnold did not take a sack. Allen didn't take a sack. If you want to say they didn't see as much pressure in their faces as Darnold did, you could maybe say that. But you could also say they maybe were a bit more decisive with the football, not holding on to the ball for four or five seconds and allowing additional pressure to come. Ty Davis Price, he was okay, but I'm putting him in the bad because he just seems to have a lack of vision. He seems like a jag, just another guy. And he's just another running back that they drafted in the third round in 2022. 2021, it was Trey Sermon, who they got rid of. I don't think Ty Davis Price is in danger of losing his job. He will be one of the four running backs, even if everybody's healthy, 
to start the season, but he seems like just another guy. He's a three-yard-per-carry running back. That's what he was last year in limited duty. 2.9 yards per carry last year, 3.2 yards versus Las Vegas. Yes, it's the first preseason game. Yes, there's two more preseason games to go. But every time I've got to see Ty Davis-Price run the ball, I am not impressed. He seems to find the back of one of his linemen or a defender as often as he finds a hole to run through. He does not seem to be anything special. I'm not going to say Jordan Mason is something special, but he seems like a better alternative than Ty Davis-Price, and he should be ahead of Price in the running back pecking order when the season starts. And again, it just comes down to me. It doesn't matter where anybody's drafted. Obviously, the higher someone's drafted, the more expectations you have for that player. But for Kyle Shanahan, who who loves, I mean, now McCaffrey is different. He's a, he's a top three, top five running back in the league. You're not going to find a McCaffrey in the second, third, fourth, or later rounds. But you can find running backs that can both run and catch the ball that probably have better vision than Trey Sermon and Ty Davis-Price do or, or have or had. And the fact that you could find a running back or go after a running back that has receiving skills, both Sermon and Price do not. So again, just another... Forever, until he breaks out, I'm just going to keep saying, a curious pick, unless they just wanted a thumper that's going to come in and get you the one, two, or three yards when you need it, he doesn't seem to be much more than that, at least right now. And lastly on the bed, for a supposedly deep team, are they really, are they really a deep team when you're getting manhandled by the Raiders backups, again, just the first preseason game. But when you look at the backups on the offensive line, they could have drafted an offensive lineman this year. At some point, they did not. Instead, they are looking at a converted tackle in Leroy Watson looking to maybe get significant minutes. Then you have... Corey Luciano, Il Manning. These are undrafted linemen. Jason Poe, undrafted from last year. Everybody's training camp hero. So many people on Niners, Web Zones, websites, and Twitter were convinced he was going to make the roster. He had no chance. Undersized, under-talented, not... These are the players that they're looking at as backups. Yes, they brought in a John Feliciano. Yes, they have a Jalen Moore who was a draft pick two years ago. Yes, there's a Nick Sakil who was a draft pick two years ago. They moved his position from tackle at Fordham, tried him out at center. That didn't really work. He was playing guard yesterday against the Raiders and didn't play it all that well. Yes, they brought Matt Pryor in, which I'm still banking on is going to make the team because of everybody that I mentioned, at least he has starting tackle experience in the league. He may not be phenomenal, but what backups are phenomenal? But he is your most vet, he and John Feliciano, at least those are two veteran backups on the line. Otherwise, you have second-year players, or maybe a third-year player in Jalen Moore, I forget, a second-year player, Nick Sakil, did a whole bunch of undrafted rookie free agents. They could have addressed the offensive line with one of their third-round picks. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more when I get into some other players that we're going to talk about. You know, in the depth on the D-line, I still, all right, we'll just, even though the, the, the depth looked bad against the Raiders, right? 
I think the depth in the in the secondary showed some promise yesterday. The D-line, I still like the D-line going nine or probably ten deep. The linebackers, I think it's going to be difficult between choosing between two rookies and a Marcelino McCrary ball for the fourth and fifth spot. I'm Battles are won in the trenches. The Niners' O-line could be a concern if they have to deal with Trent Williams being out for a couple games or even Colton McKivitz or a guard. The depth behind the starters is not great, but we didn't see starters, so you can't take a ton of way and say the sky is falling, but I will say, are the Niners actually a top-heavy team or a deep team? I'm not so sure that they're as deep of a team talent-wise as a lot of people are giving them credit for. Like all teams, you have to hope for minimal, not forget, no, minimal injuries to make a successful playoff run. So we had the good, we had the bad, now we have the Lance, the Trey Lance, who's falling somewhere in between those two adjectives. If you woke up today and just read the box score, 10 of 15, 112 yards, a touchdown, and a 111 rating, you thought he played well. He didn't. That might be the most deceiving stat line (laughs) in recent memory. He oversaw three consecutive three and outs on the 49ers' first three drives. On his first three throws, he double-clutched the ball and was sacked on two of those throws. Did he get a little bit better as the game went on? Yes. But the double-clutching, and this even happened on slower-developing seven-step play-action drops, indecisive, clutching the ball, pumping, not sure where to go, slow to throw it away. He did show some nice escapability on a couple plays, but again, he's not a Vic, he is not a Lamar Jackson, not a Josh Allen, not a Randall Cunningham, not a Steve Young, not a uh, Russell Wilson. He's not even a Brock Purdy in my mind. Purdy, even though he wasn't running the ball downfield, showed more pocket awareness, elusiveness, and escapability to keep a play alive and throw downfield with more decisiveness. What Trey Lance looks like right now is still a very raw prospect who is indecisive and a slow processor. I am a 49er fan. I am not a Brock Homer. I am not anti-Lance. Pro Darnold, pro Allen, pro or anti anybody. The only time I'm pro or anti anybody is when I'm choosing the 53-man roster, which I did last week, and I'll probably get, you know, five to ten of those projections wrong. And I've come out on record saying that Trey Lance should be the backup because he adds another element in spot duty if he wants to come in for some RPOs or passes that can turn into run potential, right? Potential other wrinkle that defensive coordinators need to prepare for. But it's looking like the tools don't matter. It's looking like the big arm doesn't matter if he can't process things. It's looking like the mobility doesn't matter if he's not that agile. You can, it's interesting, like, how can you be mobile if you're not agile? You could be mobile as a sprinter and be fast because you're running straight. But if your mobility doesn't matter because you're not agile enough to get out of the pocket or have pocket awareness enough to step up or step out when you're feeling a rush. It don't matter who's calling you mobile, a running quarterback or whatnot. I'm, I'm not seeing it. And he runs like a fullback. 
He lumbers. I'm not knocking it. I'm just calling it how I see it. He is not. He's maybe a Ben Roethlisberger when it comes to mobility. Now, now Ben over time got the better pocket awareness, but that's who I see him as. And he has a, his arm isn't as strong as Ben's and he's not as accurate at this point. Although it's season three, this is his third full off season with the team. We're not seeing the great leaps in accuracy. Now, granted, I wasn't at practices, and I know a lot of 49er content creators were at practices, and depending if you had your Lance shades on or your Purdy or your Darnold, you're going you're gonna to post things on Twitter that fits your narrative. Anybody that, if you watched Sam Darnold yesterday, and you, I'm sorry, well, you watched Darnold too, but if you watched the first half and saw Trey Lance, did you really think he was comfortable that he was not robotic, that he was decisive. No. Is pressure, did pressure have something to do with that? Sure. But guess what? If you, any quarterback can throw when the pocket's clean, you're going to have to make your hay when things aren't clean, when defenders are at your feet, at your knees, which should be personal fouls at this point. But when things aren't perfect, his first drive looked like a mess. If it's a three-step drop, get the ball out of there. Throw it, throw it at the receiver's feet, throw it away or whatever. You can't take a three-step drop, then step up into your center and get sacked and double clutch in the process. And he did that on another pass in the first drive. He didn't look, he did not look much better when it was seven-step play action. He had two near interceptions that to me were inexcusable. One was a touchdown where he rolled left. Again, it was a, a, a deeper drop, a slow developing play, rolled left, threw back across his body in the middle of the field. I think it was Tay Martin was a receiver in the end zone who was kind of open, but he has to either put the ball higher or not throw it there at all because there was a safety cornerback, linebacker, whoever, that should have caught the ball, bobbled it, and then basically batted it to Ross Dwelly, who actually made the nice diving catch for a touchdown. Should have been a pick. Later in the half, again, looking downfield, wanted to hit a deep in or an intermediate in, threw it right to the linebacker. He did not look off the coverage at all. The linebacker read his eyes, should have had another interception. Two sides of the coin. You want to say that that's not, those aren't throws that a third-year quarterback should make? I agree. But I'll also agree with saying those are throws that a raw quarterback probably will make to learn because he is still Raw, not a lot of snaps. Now in practice, you know, we get like the, you know, the 49er content heroes keeping track of snaps of seven on seven, 11 on 11, move the ball drills, etc. Apparently Lance does really well in seven on sevens in practice. Here's my take on that, even though I wasn't in practice. Why? There's no tackling. No one's hitting him. Seven on seven, I guess there's less going on on the field for him to get confused by. But guess what? I was really good on seven on seven also. It's called flag football, guys. It was actually six on six, and there was a rush, and I could run and escape the pocket, and I played for 10 plus years. I am not comparing flag football to to pro stuff. It is a correlate because I am not a professional athlete, and Trey Lance and other and other quarterbacks and players in the NFL are. So if that's all I'm able to do, then that's in a way my NFL. So I understand in a way, in a very slight way, what he's seeing on 7-on-7 seven seven and why it's easier than 11-on-11. 11 11, but that's a concern. 
if that's not a concern, tell me what is, right? And I'm not anti-Trey. I am not anti-Trey. But he looked a bit out of sorts. Yes, this was his first live game action in however long after the surgery, etc. But go back and watch Brock Purdy's film from preseason last year. He looked a lot, and I went back and did. He looked a lot better than Lance did, and Purdy was a rookie getting no snaps in training camp. Minimal snaps in his rookie training camp. Some players just have a better feel, whether it's experience, number of snaps in college, in the pros, etc., or maybe it's just not being a quick processor, not having it as much between the ears as some other quarterbacks do. And that's okay. Maybe it'll take Lance a bit longer to get there. But let's go back to why this this team is put together to win now. Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, I guess, were okay handing the keys over to Lance last year because they thought the team was good enough that if Lance made mistakes in the first half of the season, by the second half of the season, he'll maybe outgrow them and, and be dangerous enough to do something in the playoffs. Well, as we know, Lance got hurt game two. Jimmy comes in for a bunch of games. And Brock looks like, I don't want to say a seasoned veteran, but maybe a second or third year player with how he played over those eight games. They are not going to wait for Lance anymore. There is no need to wait for Lance anymore. When you have Purdy, when you have Darnold, when you have, I don't want to say throw Brandon Allen into the mix, but he looked pretty decent as is. Lance, it's a catch-22, guys, and anybody that's a Lance fan, and I'm a Lance fan, I'm just not a Lance homer, there's a difference, and I'm a Brock fan, I'm not a Brock homer, and I am a Sam and Ky, uh, Brandon Allen fan, I'm just not homers. It's a catch-22, Lance needs reps, but it can't come at the expense of this team and this roster, which is looking to make another Super Bowl run. And I actually went back, for what it's worth, because a lot of people don't do the research, it's just opinions out of blue sky. In 2019, the only time he's played a full season, and it was 16 games, North Dakota State won the national championship. 16 games, he had 287 pass attempts. That averages to 18 passes a game. Of those 16 games, he had nine games with less than 20 attempts, seven games with less than 15 attempts. The national championship, he was 10 of 11, which is great. But through 11 passes, because they were just running the ball. I don't know if it was against James Madison. I forgot who they beat. He does not, obviously does not have the volume of experience like other quarterbacks do. At least right now, Purdy and Darnold and Brandon Allen. Can you see Kyle trusting him to take over the season if Purdy gets hurt? I, I don't know. Again, only one preseason game. If he gets Monst if he looks monstrously better in practice in the next two preseason games, the whole narrative can shift. But this is where we are right now. You didn't, I didn't take anything out of the game, really from anybody yesterday that you feel good about, but especially Lance. And it's all commensurate. Lance played against the twos for a first half. Darnold and Allen played against threes or potentially fours in the second half. But that's across the board, right? You have your third string O-line against the third string D-line. Your third string receivers and tight ends and running backs against their third string quarterbacks and linebackers. and say It's all commensurate. Everybody's on equal footing. 
I don't want to hear, well, if Lance had McCaffrey and Kittle and Debo and Ayuk, well, then guess what? The Raiders would have had their first team on, on the field as well. And that the results might have looked the same. And 10 of 15 is basically Lance's college line for 16 games, right? That's all Lance was asked to do in college was throw the ball on average 18 times a game. Shanahan is asking more. It's probably overwhelming for him. It's got to be San Diego, uh, San Diego State, North Dakota State's offense versus Kyle Shanahan's offense. Yeah, I think one's more complicated than another. I think we're going from uh, college level courses to middle school social studies. Right? Guys, Lance isn't getting cut. I'm not a proponent of that. It'll, it'll never ha- it shouldn't happen, and it'll never happen for a, si- a significant reason. There's a $14.6 million cap it if he does and a negative $5.3 million in savings. This is per overthecap.com. Now, no one's quoting this number, but that means if you have a $14.6 million cap hit plus negative savings, that means it's basically a $20 million total cap hit if he gets released. He is not getting released. I don't care how many Trey haters are out there, and unfortunately they're out there, he is not getting released. If he gets traded... 5.5 5.5 on the cap, 3.7 million in savings. Who's going to want him? Play it out differently, right? Say say he continues on this, plays this way. In pre- well, no one's going to see practice, but they'll read clippings. In preseason game two and three, who's going to want that? And even if someone wants him, you're going to get crap trade value. Let's say he turns it around and plays really well in practices, really well in the next two preseason games. Then why would you trade him? Because then you have a viable number two, number three, quarterback and you see how Shanahan's teams go through quarterbacks every year except for 2019 so there's no scenario where it makes sense to trade him unless he plays like dog shit the next two games and practices and someone offers a first round pick plus for him which is not going to happen and I said in a previous podcast I would hold out for a first plus but that's just me being a cheap bastard and saying like I want to get as much as I can for for any player that I want to give up He's not going anywhere, guys, nor should he. It's just a matter of is he the two or the three. And every and I said this before, every week that goes by, inches closer to solidifying his status on the 49ers roster. Because every week that goes by, he's falling behind another team's playbook by a week and another couple days and a week. And then how is he going to be functional? It's been three off seasons in San Francisco. He doesn't look all that functional right now. Is he automatically going to be a savior for Minnesota if Kirk Cousins gets hurt? I don't think so. The Bengals, if Joe Burrow actually tore his Achilles? I don't think so. He's going to stay here, guys. The most logical path for him is if Purdy plays well again this season, I think Lance is traded next offseason. $5.5 million cap hit. They save $5.5 million. They bring Darnold or Allen back, and maybe they draft another quarterback or something, and they'll everybody will move on. Everybody will move on. Now, here's the comparison that I know a lot of 49er fans don't want to hear, but Trey Lance is the new Alex Smith. And I think Alex Smith is his ceiling. And if he reaches Alex Smith's career, then Trey Lance did well. Alex Smith played for 16 years in the league. It was for three different teams, and he missed two years due to injury. Once early on in his career with the 49ers, with the shoulder, and once obviously with the Redskins with that horrific break that he 
miraculously, you know, came back from. Here's the difference. Smith started really for two years. He was three. He, he was with the Utah Utes for three years in college, but really started for two years, had 587 pass attempts in college, which was more than twice what Trey had. And if you want to remember, former Utah Utes head coach, who then turned into a human scumbag, Urban Meyer, said that Alex Smith was non-functional. That was his word, non-functional until he learns the offense. And unfortunately, Alex Smith had, what, seven offensive coordinators his first seven years in the league? Alex was the number one overall pick. Niners didn't trade up to get him. They earned that pick. They were terrible in 2004. San Francisco traded up to number three overall to draft Trey Lance for two reasons. They wanted, and they came out and said it, they wanted a quarterback on a rookie, a rookie deal. And they had a mediocre enough season that they could get into the top three. It took a lot, two ones and a three, and, and a number one uh, pick swap. But if you were the, if you, they were, 28th in the drafting order would have taken a lot more to get up there. So the stars aligned to make a move for a top rookie quarterback. They took a big swing, and right now it looks like they missed. But fans have immediate and overall unfair expectations of 49er quarterbacks. Why? Because fans are spoiled by Joe Montana, then Steve Young. Jeff Garcia gave some good years. Hell, even Jimmy Garoppolo got up to a Super Bowl. I know a lot of people don't like Jimmy. I like Jimmy. I even like Colin Kaepernick. I think he got a bad rap. You are not a bad quarterback if you can get to the Super Bowl and then get back to the NFC Championship game the next year. That's what Colin Kaepernick did in 12 and 13, and that's what, well, Jimmy made a Super Bowl and then two other NFC Championship games. How is that not a good quarterback, guys? How is that? That's fortunate, and we'll see what Jimmy does in Las Vegas, but made the Niners relevant again, had us watching into the end of January and February sometimes. I'll take that. Would have been nice to get a Super Bowl ring, but again, I don't get a ring, I don't get a jacket, I don't get anything. I just would have gotten a game on DVR that I would have gotten back to and watched every so often. I'm not in grammar school anymore, guys. None of us are, or high school. There's no bragging rights. We're not part of the team. Like I said before, all we are are machines for turning beer into piss. Like I mentioned, Alex Smith... More of an un- he had more of an unfair go of it with the Niners and their fans than Trey Lance did. I mentioned seven OCs in his first seven years. Trey's had Shan- Shanahan for his first three off seasons. You would think that consistency would lead to maybe a little bit more consistency from Trey, at least what I saw last night against the Raiders. Alex Smith stuck around for as long as he did because he had no real competition. Remember, he- so he had his first contract that went for either four or five years. Then they re-signed him again whatever it was, 2009, 2010, I forget. But he had no competition. These are the quarterbacks that were on the roster while Smith was on the roster. Trent Dilfer, Sean Hill, J.T. O'Sullivan, Chris Wanky, Troy Smith, and David Carr. At no point was Alex Smith ever in danger of losing his job to another quarterback until Colin Kaepernick came along. But that's from 2005 to 2011. So you're talking six to seven seasons of Smith, yeah, you can look over your shoulder. I mean, his rookie year, he wasn't close to ready. He had like one touchdown and a whole bunch of interceptions, right, in 2005. He wasn't ready. Neither was Trey Lance's first, his rookie year. So they have that in common as well. But Smith had no competition. Lance had Jimmy his first year, and Lance was never going to start, guys. Let's, can we, I'll keep saying it, just in case there's anyone out there that thinks, well, you don't give up all that for a player to start. Yeah, you do. 
Yeah, you do. When it's someone you draft from North Dakota State who only played for one year. Yeah, you do. And that was the plan the whole time. But Lance had Jimmy year one. Then he gets hurt and there's Purdy who lights it up in year two. And now year three, he has Purdy, Darnold, and Brandon Allen who also has more experience than him. 31-year-old quarterback, been in the league for seven or eight years. That experience counts for something. The tools and the ability and the talent are nice. But again, those are ingredients of the meal. But if they're undercooked, underprepared, or seasoned improperly, it's not going to lead to a good dinner. If Lance ends up having an Alex Smith-type career, that would still be a commendable career. Remember, the NFL career is only three or four years on average. To last 16, or let's say he lasts 10 years, good for him. It's not working out so far, but we're all optimistic. We're all going to hope for the best. We should all want the best um, season or the best quarterback room possible because it strengthens the team. You want every position group to be as deep and strong as possible because of injuries. Quarterback is no different. If Purdy wins out, which he probably should, great. If Lance is number two, great. And if Darnold is number three, great. And Allen ends up on the practice squad, great. Then they're insulating themselves as best they possibly can from any sort of injury. Even though last year was a fluke, why roll the die dice in that instance again? And the last thing, you know, I want to say for all coaches, and Shanahan is no exception, like he looked at the skill set, right? And he wants, he talks about playing 11 on 11 football, and that's using Lance's mobility and making the, the defense defend everybody, including the quarterback. So even though you as a, not you, but even though coaches always think that they're going to be the ones that can coach that player up, they're going to be the ones that can maximize that ability. That's why quarterbacks get so many chances. That's why Ryan Leaf got multiple chances. Jamarcus Russell didn't, but he was an absolute slob and waste. So that's kind of another story. But there's a, a bunch, Jeff George, just a bunch of quarterbacks. Zach Wilson will get another chance. Baker Mayfield's got multiple chances because one, hardest position in, in pro sports to find. And two, there's some talent there. There's some talent if you're a top pick. You're not a schlep. But every quarterback thinks, I will be the one to unlock it. Some point, though, those coaches have to realize, at some point, you have to let go and hope that your coaching sticks, right? At some point, known as the games, coaches have to let go. There is no controller either tethered or Wi-Fi'd to your quarterback so the coach or offensive coordinator could make every quote-unquote right decision that the quarterback doesn't. It's not a video game. It's not Madden. You coach the best you can, you let go, and hope the quarterback makes the right audible, makes the right read, on time, decisive. And if it's true in a way that the quarterback is an extension of the offensive coordinator or the head coach who has an offensive bend, then that quarterback is Brock. That's why he's QB1, and it's pretty darn clear right now. So a couple last segments. I'm going to call this the if this was the last preseason game, and it's not. (laughs) It's the first. If this was the last preseason game, Ronnie Bell makes the team. Now, he may make the team anyway because of um, Ray Ray McLeod's injury, But he looked pretty good. He showed, at least in one game, that he can field kickoff returns. And kickoff returns don't even matter now, right? Remember the the fair catch rule. You fair catch the ball anywhere inside the 25-yard line, it comes out to the 25-yard line. 
showed a couple, he, fe- he fielded a couple punts. Now, it was indoors, no wind. Let's just take that into consideration, too. But if this is the last preseason game, Ronnie Bell makes the team. If this was the last preseason game and tight end Cameron Latou was a sixth or seventh round pick, he would get cut. He has not had a good training camp, a lot of drops, was part of two illegal formation penalties. His only reception resulted in a fumble inside the 49ers' 10-yard line. I thought it was Willie Sneed, for whatever that's worth, meaning he didn't look all that big. He didn't look on TV like tight end size when that when that ball got punched out. Obviously, he's in the 250, 245, 250, 55 weight range. So that was visually just my bad angle or, or just incorrect read. But if he was a sixth or seventh round pick, he would get cut. He will probably make the team, but it's only because he's a third round pick. Ambry Thomas at cornerback, third year, had a nice game. And if this was the last preseason game, he's going to make the decision hard for Shanahan and Steve Wilkes on if he should be one of the probably five cornerbacks um, to make the team. I want hard decisions for the coaches. I don't want it to be easy because that means the depth is even worse than it looked last night against the Raiders. If this was the last preseason game, Marcelino McCrary ball, D. Winters and Jalen Graham at linebacker are going to make it tough on Steve Wilkes. I did say, like, I would be, I don't know how comfortable I would be to have two rookies as part of the five linebacker rotation, but Jalen Graham led the team in tackles. D. Winters flashed a couple times, and McCrary ball led in tackles also with six. Again, let's make the the decision difficult. And if this was the last preseason game, Zane Gonzalez may make it over Jake Moody. Now, there's a lot. Jake Moody's been looking good in practice, and Zane Gonzalez has been looking just as good in practice. I fully anticipate Jake Moody to be the kicker, and the 49ers will probably try to flip Zane Gonzalez for a pick because they traded Zane Gonzalez with the Panthers. They, I think it was a conditional draft pick, so I think that condition is probably if he makes the team, Carolina, you probably get a sixth or seventh, say a seventh round draft pick. I don't know the particulars, but that would probably make sense to me. But if this was the last preseason game, would Kyle Shanahan be comfortable leaving kicking duties, pressure kicking duties, regular season games to a rookie? I don't know. Now, I'm sure, listen, I'm sure Moody's going to make the team. I'm sure he's going to be fine. He showed a big leg on that 58 yarder, which he missed. I mean, he missed ridiculously wide right. But it looked like that could have been good for maybe 65 plus. But here's the curious thing about that. The fact that it was a third round pick again. And the fact that Zane Gonzalez was on the team already. They made that conditional pick for Zane Gonzalez with the Panthers before the draft. So they could have used that third round pick on, oh, I don't know, a backup offensive lineman. Another corner. and Something. Jake Moody will be fine, guys. He'll be on the team. I, if they did not have a kicker on the roster at all and they drafted Moody in the third, it would have made a little bit more sense than drafting him when you already had Gonzalez. This is not knee-jerk reaction. It's like a cause and effect, effect type thing. And listen, if they get a seventh-round, sixth-round pick next year for Gonzalez and Moody straighten things out, great. Again, only the first preseason game, but this section was if this was the last preseason game. Let's end with with bad Twitter takes because you know, you know Twitter be melting down, yo. It certainly is. Here's the first. Honestly, the two dropped interceptions by Lance weren't good, but besides those, I thought Lance played solid. No, he didn't. If you're just looking at the stat line and didn't watch the game, you could maybe take, make that takeaway. But if you watch the game, 
Solid is not the adjective I would use, nor should you use, Twitter idiot. Next one. Yeah, people are overreacting, but I think Lance did good. C minus grade. In what educational system is a C minus good? And if you consider a C minus good, then you earn your moron or idiot moniker because that's probably what you're going to max out intellectually in school. Now, this one came with an image from a, from a notorious Lance Homer and overall moronic content creator. But here was the quote, Lance's third sack, comma, zero separation. And the picture was of the Ford receivers from the 49ers in the pattern. The pattern just started and they were all four yards downfield, meaning they were all, ru- they were all basically running into the corners and linebackers they were covering them. Just get, take that mental picture. He just said hike. No receiver is farther than four yards downfield. Everybody is still running in a straight line, and everybody has a Raider corner or defender in front of them. And the quote was, Lance's third sack, zero interception, zero separation. One, Lance wasn't sacked yet. Two, the receivers are only running a straight line right now. Three, they're only four yards downfield. They haven't even reached the Raiders defenders yet. And Lance, and Lance is not even close to being sacked yet. Lance does get sacked, but don't tell me it's because of zero separation when the screen grab you picked was so stupid. And let's not, we, we got to include a racist one. We can't end on just stupidity. Let's end on a stupid racist. Here's the quote. I know all the Trey hating clan club are busting their nuts right now. Now, I appreciate the, the back end of that. I guess, I guess a way to maybe diffuse the racism in a post is to talk about ejaculation. I guess maybe because ejaculate is white and this racism was clearly coming from a person of color. Maybe that cancels out. I don't know, but this is what we're dealing with folks. It's not only stupidity, but it's racism as well. And more calls for, you know, journalists that are racist and they're not covering equally, et cetera, et cetera. Again, a treasure trove of quotes to share with you, the audience, but widespread hyperbole and stupidity and meltdowns on 49er Twitter. I love to scroll, but I can't respond because I, I just can't, can't. I respond to some that are having like a decent discourse, but boy, is it toxic. And that will conclude the 49ers section of the podcast. It went a little longer than I thought, but hopefully You took some perspective out of it. Coming up, we're going to be talking Washington Commanders potentially going back to the Redskins moniker. Some CFL football briefly. Foundation sci-fi series on Apple Plus. Chernobyl on Max and Far Sector, a comic book series written by a Hugo Award winning author. I will discuss all of that and more. Hope you stay with us. It's plus time. So in addition to the plus section, before we get into sports and TV talk, uh, this morning I went to go pick up uh, breakfast at a local breakfast place and I pulled in next to a car that had the front door windows cracked, maybe about an inch, and uh, a fluffy black dog was sitting strapped in the driver's seat. Now, this is maybe 10 in the morning, early, it was like low 80s out, obviously hotter in a car. 
And I went inside, you know, to pick up my order and there was someone else waiting for pickup. And just to, you know, just to satisfy my curiosity, I asked the woman, hey, is that your cute black dog that's in the car out there in the, in the front seat? She's like, no, no, I don't have a dog. I'm parked across in the whatever color car. So that just absolutely infuriated me because I assumed the only reason that you would leave a dog in the car on a summer morning was to pick up food somewhere. Even then, that's nothing I would do. So if you don't know, I have um, a dog. He's going to be 13 in September. He's a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. His name is Charlie, black and tan. If you don't know the breed, essentially he looks like Lady from Lady and the Tramp. Um, we love him to death. Me, my wife, our kids were all over him. He's a lap dog, a cuddle bug, you know, such a good boy. And seeing that from me, who I was never a dog person before getting Charlie, um, aggravated me so much. So I had to... Once I found out that the woman that was waiting with me, it wasn't her dog, just mentioned to the woman behind the counter, like, hey, just so you know, there's a dog out there in the car. Obviously, no one's picking up their food. Someone's having a meal here. And I, and I think I said something like, and it's a shitty thing to do to a dog. It's a black dog. It's hot out. She's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll try to say something. And she came outside with me. She's like, what car is it? I'm like, this one. And it was a maroon Honda something SUV that was parked next to my car. She went inside. Got on the phone right after that. So I'm in the car, I'm on the phone, and some, you know, an older guy was not getting pickup, but, but kind of ran out, um, got into his car, and quickly backed out. I don't know if he saw that I was there or knew that I was the one that complained or whatever, but lucky that I was on the phone because I would have cracked my window and said something to him politely, but I would have said something, right? Because isn't that a crime, right? Like, not even, not even if you injure the dog. Just the fact that you're leaving the dog out on a hot day. I should have taken a picture of the car, of his license plate, and contacted the police just to be, not even to be a dick about it, just to be a decent, humane person. Maybe to wake this jerk off up to not do it again. And I was, so I was, that person is lucky that I was on the phone in the car when he got in his car and pulled out and pulled away. And speaking of pulled out, this person's father should have pulled out to not have an asshole that would do that to a dog, a black dog who's going to absorb more heat in a car on a summer's day when he decided to have a meal. And I was very close when I was in the restaurant to just, I was thinking about just kind of walking over into the general area saying, hey, excuse me, just attention. If anybody has a maroon Honda SUV with a dog in it, you might want to get your dog out of the car. It's hot out. I felt a little shy or squeamish to do it, but why not, right? Like, I mean, I should have. I, for those of you that don't know me, I am an asshole. <laughs> that might have been treading on being disruptive in a public setting or whatever, but it all worked out in a way because the woman either mentioned it or just serendipitously that asshole's meal was done at that time and he decided to come out. But shitty thing to do, shitty thing to see that kind of pissed me off um, that I wanted to share. Hopefully it didn't piss you off too, but... um. I'm proud of myself in a way that I didn't say anything because uh, maybe that means I'm maturing or something else, and, and I don't know what maturing is. But let's get back to um, football. So I was watching a CFL game earlier. It was I guess earlier on in the week. Winnipeg Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Edmonton Elk. Now I'll I'll generally watch football if I stumble across it. I'll watch CFL games. I've watched XFL games, USFL games, the defunct AAF. I've watched arena games. I've even watched 
men's flag football when it's on like the Ocho or whatever. I don't hunt out these non, not of course college football. I'm not hunting out these lesser football leagues, but I'll watch, right? It's like good background noise. When I was watching Winnipeg versus Edmonton, I did a double take because I thought, wait, weren't, wasn't the Edmonton team in the CFL the Eskimos, not the Elk? So I had to go online and do some research, and apparently they changed their name from the Eskimos to the Elk in 2020. So I guess I haven't been paying attention to the CFL the past couple of years to realize that their uniforms did not change. Their helmets did not change. There is still an E in, I think, like a yellow circle against a green helmet, if I'm remembering that correctly. So going from Eskimo to Elk, they kept the alliteration. They kept the E. The helmets are okay. They didn't have to overhaul everything the way that the Redskins did to the commanders. But apparently, even looking looking stuff up, apparently Eskimo is an offensive term. It's been widely replaced by Inuit. I didn't, like, when you think of Eskimos, don't you think of, like, cute characters of, of people wearing um, parkas and, and, and igloos and doing stuff in, in the snow and you know, is there something called Eskimo kisses where you just kind of like rub your nose together and they've gotten that from Eskimos? Um, I did not realize that that's become, you know, a derogatory term, much like everything, you know, who knows what are not derogatory terms anymore, right? But that made me go back and and think about how a couple weeks ago, the commanders were sold to Josh Harris and a group for $6.05 billion. And that group included Magic Johnson, and in the subsequent weeks, they started talking about and mentioning the history and the pride and the Super Bowl that's associated with the Redskins name and potentially bringing that back. Oh boy, right? Now, the Redskins is a derogatory term. Now, whether, you know, and if you look things up, you're going to get different definitions from history, whether it is about. Indians being savages and scalping humans. So the Redskins coming there or vice versa. Um, Americans scalping Indians and getting paid X amount of dollars for each scalp or Redskins referring to the war paint that they're using. So there's no necessarily good connotation for Redskins, but to use the term again, commander's ownership, and to want to bring it back. I don't know if that's the I don't know if that's the right conversation and thing you want to have. Now there is a petition online that has nearly 70,000 signatures for folks that want to hashtag reclaim the name. And that actually includes the Native American Guardian Association, so a Native American group that is also pushing to bring the name back. And when you do your research, you understand that there are not as many Native Americans um, are offended by the term as you would think. It really is other, not, there are other people, other races, other classes that are, that were pushing for the name change just as much, if not more so, than Native Americans. Don't misunderstand this. Not every Native American is against the name Redskins. And there was um, a poll back in, I think the early 2000s, 2010s, where 80% of Native Americans polled had no issue with the name, right? But once something becomes a problem, once it starts trending on Twitter, once it becomes a fad and something popular to hop onto, that's when the gears really start going. 
Don't misunderstand me. It's a derogatory term universally, and it should not be used or brought back. The petition was interesting. I mean, there's petitions for anything. The fact that there's 70,000 doesn't really impress me, but the fact that there's at least one Native American group that wants to bring the name back was curious. Now, that just made me think further. So Edmonton Eskimos are now the Edmonton Elk. Looking back at other names that have changed or team names that still have some sort of a Native American-ish connotation that are still being used, my question is why? So obviously, the Cleveland Indians changed their name a few years ago to the Cleveland Guardians. Now, Indians is a nondescript name, right? In, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a vanilla name. You play Cowboys and Indians. Now, I don't know if it's insulting because you're not defining the type of Indian, like an Apache Indian or, or something else. I'm not well-versed in my you know, Indian clans or names. I'm not sure the right nomenclature there, but maybe because it's too general, it made it offensive. Or maybe it was because chief Wahoo, the Indians mascot had a red face and that made everything a little bit more effective. I'm not sure, but they've been the guardians for the past two seasons. However, in baseball, we still have the Atlanta Braves in the NFL. We have the Kansas city chiefs. In the NHL, the Chicago Blackhawks. In the NBA, the Golden State Warriors. And in college football, we have the Utah Utes, the San Diego State University Aztecs, the Illinois Fighting Illini, and the University of Louisiana at Monroe Warhawks. Florida State Seminoles is another one. I don't know why I didn't put it on. I didn't put that on my list, but the Seminoles are another one. And remember. However many years ago, the Seminoles, you know, tomahawk chop chant was an issue. It was an issue at Chiefs games. I guess that's blown over or I don't know what. But I would really, and I can't figure out the whys here. I just haven't uncovered them enough. Braves, Chiefs, Blackhawks, Warriors, Utes, Aztecs, Fighting Illini, Warhawks, Seminoles. Why are those okay? Why are those okay? Redskins, I get. Indians, I, I really don't get. I guess if they were the Cleveland Native Americans, that's probably better. But I, 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 it's hard for me to keep track of what is an issue and what is not today. Are we saying everything else that I've listed in baseball, football, hockey, the NBA, and college athletics, that those are all revered nicknames? that those are Indian or Native American pride names, I would find that kind of hard to believe, right? I don't know. Something I want to put out there, just, and thank you, Canada, <laughs> for making me remember that. We went from, and it started with Eskimos, right? And you would think that Eskimos is, might not be an offensive thing, but, but apparently it is, and obviously we're living in the 2020s now. Hopefully elk don't learn to read at any point because then the Edmonton elk are going to be changed into something else that needs to start with an E. The eggs, I don't know, that need to <laughs> keep the alliteration. So from sports, let's kind of finish up with TV. Foundation, season two on Apple Plus. They were, it's a series adapted by the really groundbreaking sci-fi Foundation trilogy, and then they added books before and after 
by Isaac Asimov about 80 years ago. First season, okay. You know, I thought it it had to establish the world and the universe and psycho history and the science behind it. Season two got a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. Feels about right. Season season one rather did. Season two got 100%, which seems high. Maybe there aren't that many reviews. Now, overall, between the two seasons, critics are giving it an 86%. Feels about right. Viewers, a 68%. Widely considered unfilmable for the longest time, which I understand why. Not an action-packed book, more of a thinking person's science fiction story. Not a lot of riveting drama going on. But the artistic changes that were made by the showrunners and the creative um, staff, I am a big fan of. And the biggest one being the so the overall story, just to kind of go back. Season one, setting up the, the premise that a psycho historian, uh, Harry Seldon, played by Jared Harris, so, foresaw the fall of the Galactic Empire. And it wouldn't happen for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So he set up what he's calling a foundation on a planet super far from the main planet. The main planet is Trantor. And he sets up a foundation of people to preserve the knowledge of mankind on a planet called Terminus. And if it all goes well, that repository of human knowledge will shorten the fall of the Galactic Empire, the Dark Ages, by hundreds of years. And the, and the universe will get back on its footing quicker. Season one had to set that up. It was a little slow at times. Season two now jumps ahead, but it may, manages to keep the five main lead actors and actresses through either stasis while traveling between worlds, cloning, or one being a robot. Now, one of the creative changes that I mentioned was the Emperor, Cleon, is a clone of the first Emperor Cleon from hundreds of years ago. And the uh, Galactic Empire is ruled by a young version of this clone called Day. I'm sorry, uh, called Dawn. The middle version uh, is called Day, and he's played by Lee Pace, the middle-aged version. And the elder version, his name is Dusk. And as they age, obviously, the younger one will, be, will inherit the crown and become the middle-aged one. The middle-aged one will become the older one, and the older one will die. And they still have clones in these vials that they could defrost or whatnot if somebody gets killed or sick or something. But that was a very interesting change from the books, and it keeps Lee Pace as one of the lead actors for all the seasons. Now, Lee Pace, um, he was actually in Guardians of the Galaxy, the first movie, as Ronan. The other stars, Jared Harris, who has been in Carnival Row, the Chernobyl series on Max, which I'm going to get into. Lou Lobel is one of the lead actresses, along with Leah Harvey, and Laura Byrne, um, plays, uh, the, the female robot character who is essentially, um, she appraises, uh, the three emperors. This is a much faster moving season. We're halfway through. If you're, if you have Apple plus and you're into sci-fi fantasy, I would say, check it out. I mentioned before it is visually stunning for a TV series. I know Apple has more money than God, but what, what they are throwing at it from an effects standpoint and just scenery, it, it, it really is sometimes overwhelming. Really, really well done. I would recommend uh, watching it. Like everything, it comes out every two years. Like any costly effects-driven series like a Game of Thrones, like a House of the Dragon, like a Stranger Things. So next season won't come out until 2025. But something I think worth checking out. And I wanted to reiterate 
Jared Harris, one of the leads on Foundation, is one of the leads on the HBO Max, now Max series Chernobyl from 2019. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 95% critic score, 97% user score. I brought this up maybe a month or so ago, but rewatched it. My wife wanted to watch it. And it really just is a fantastic series. It's only five episodes. They are intense episodes. It's also starring Stellan Skarsgård, who was in the first two Thor movies. He was in Dune, and he was in the first season of Andor. And also Emily Watson, who is the female lead. You know what's going to happen. You know Chernobyl's going to go off, and, and it happens in the first episode, and the other, the remaining four episodes are about the cleanup what the Soviets had to do and had to hide and had to deny to really save thousands upon thousands of, of, of square kilometers from being poisoned and unlivable forever and how close they came to that actually happening. It's, the, it's very atmospheric. It is moody. There's a sense of dread Throughout this, I mean, you know what's going to happen and you can still feel, you know, what the actors and actresses are feeling, almost hoping that it's not going to happen. Then even the aftermath, that continuing feeling of, of the best word I can use is just dread and the tone is absolutely incredibly well done. Jared Harris and Emily Watson were nominated for Lead actor and lead actress Emmys, they did not win. Stellan Skarsgård was nominated for um, supporting actor. He did not win either, but it did win for best limited series, best directing, best writing, and best cinematography. Intense at times when it shows the human uh, impact of the radiation of people in hospitals. Impactful when you see like the stats of the number of people that, that have died and the number of Deaths that the Soviet Union attributes to Chernobyl, I think it's less than 30 that they are admitting were caused by Chernobyl. And we know it's much more than that, given folks that either worked at Chernobyl or were trying to put out the fire or were near it, you know, trying to troubleshoot and do what they need to do to contain the damage. And then obviously cancers that resulted after the fact. Again, if you're into dramas, and this is historical drama, and it is, in a way, HBO's or Max's slant on it, although it is based on a book, but you should never take the book as Bible or gospel in terms of what went, hap- what went wrong, who did what, who did not do what, and were Russian nuclear reactors and facilities really made of the right materials to prevent something like this from happening. Absolutely fantastic show. Chernobyl and Foundation. I can't recommend I can't recommend Chernobyl highly enough. Foundation, I recommend highly, but it's not gonna be everybody's cup of tea because of the sci-fi fantasy element. But I think Chernobyl is something that we all know about, but I think it's something that we also don't know as much about as we probably should. And last but not least, let's conclude with comic books, a comic book series, Far Sector by Hugo Award-winning author N.K. Jemisin and artist Jamal Campbell, a 12-issue run from 2019-2020, I believe. And essentially what this is about, it is a newly chosen Green Lantern. Her name is Joe Mullen, who has been tasked with protecting the planet called the City Enduring, 
which is essentially a massive metropolis, much like Coruscant from the Star Wars universe, much like Trantor from the Foundation universe. And it has 20 billion people, and the city has maintained peace for over 500 years. And by doing, be, how they've done that is they've stripped people from having emotions. As a result, violent crime is virtually unheard of, but the first murder has happened in 500 years, and this Green Lantern, Joe Mullen, is brought in to investigate why. This planet consists of three distinctly different races, including an AI race, a robotic race, and humanoid carnivorous plants, which is interesting because it is a key part of what happens in the murder and the subsequent murder that happens off of that. And Joe, the Green Lantern, is then tasked with conducting interviews, learning more about you know their, their technological interface and people that live within the technology, within the AI, that have representation on this three-person council, who's scheming. It's This is a very dense book in terms of the themes it's dealing with. And they are, there are very human themes, even though it's sci-fi fantasy, there are themes that we can easily identify with. Why, you know, why certain people, not why, but certain people being suppressed, certain people experiencing racism, unjustly accused of things, um, having to deal with violence, having to deal with murder, What's interesting about Joe the Green Lantern, all other Green Lanterns, their rings are charged with their lantern that they kind of carry around. And there are also central power batteries on uh, the main planet Oa that all Green Lanterns, not that they originate from, but where their guardians who kind of send out the rings to find worthy Green Lanterns, they can recharge their rings there as well. Joe's ring in this book recharges on its own, but slowly. And this ring is not as powerful as other Green Lantern rings, but it's also kind of a lesson for her in, tar- in terms of how she can wield the ring, power management. And she's going into, she's in this book, she is solving this murder and this situation just as much as a human being, a powerless human being, as she is a Green Lantern. Um, this, like I mentioned, this book is dense. It really pushes fantasy and sci-fi themes within the comic book medium. Comic books are generally not sci-fi. They're fantasy. Even outer space, you know, books that deal with cosmic things like Guardians of the Galaxy, for instance, Silver Surfer and Thanos from the 90s, it really is more fantasy than sci-fi. This definitely had a pretty heavy sci-fi bent, which I appreciate because that's not something that I'm reading in a comic book medium. Usually it's in a novel that I'm reading or an audiobook that I'm listening to. The writing and the art are fantastic. The dialogue, the internal dialogue, the world building linguistically and, vis- and visually is fantastic as well. And this book was part of DC's Young Animal imprint, which were really highlighting new, not necessarily young authors and artists, but new folks to the comic book game. It was disbanded after a couple of years, but the character Joe, the Green Lantern, was still part or is still part of the DC universe. That was a nice, a nice get, a nice keep from this book. And like I mentioned before, author N.K. Jemison won the Hugo Award, and that is sci-fi and fantasy's highest award you can give to an author for her Broken Earth trilogy. 
But on top of that, she won the Hugo for all three books individually. And she is the, she's the first author to do that for a trilogy. And she's the first author to win the Hugo in three consecutive years as her books came out in consecutive years. I want to check out, you know, these books. I really like N.K. Jemisin as a writer. I'm not sure if she's doing anything else comic book wise, but she is someone that I want to follow. I think her books are very heavy sci-fi. There's a fantasy element to it as well. I read the reviews, or not the reviews, the synopsis, synopsises, or synopses for her books. I'm not going to go into explaining that because it may seem, I won't do it justice and it may seem confusing to the audience, but I think she is a writer. That again, if you are a sci-fi fan and reader, N.K. Jemisin, The Broken Earth Trilogy, she has written other books as well, Maybe something that you want to check out. And I think if you are a comic book fan and a fan of fantasy and a fan of sci-fi, you get 12 solidly written and illustrated beyond solid issues, far sector. And it's, it's a, if you buy it on Amazon, it's a $30 cover price comic book, which in its, in and itself is a deal because comics are basically two ninety nine, dollars and you're getting 12 issues. So that's 36 bucks. And you could probably get it cheaper on Amazon or eBay, I think, again, comic fan, fantasy sci-fi fan, if that's you rolled into one, I think it's a 12-issue series you will enjoy and you will certainly get your money's worth. That concludes the 49ers podcast for this week. Like always, I want to thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedules to listen to me ramble on about the 49ers and other things. Hopefully, you found it entertaining in some capacity and hopefully you found it objective in a lot of other capacities the 49ers next preseason game is saturday so i will try to be timely once again coming out with a podcast on either sunday or monday but until then try to stay off twitter it's going to be super toxic good news they walked out of that game with no injuries even though they did not look good they are still the 49ers are still pretty healthy which is really all you want coming out of the preseason and to not look like you're falling over your feet. And they did look like that at times against the Raiders. But once again, thank you for listening. Next podcast coming Sunday or Monday. Until then, have a happy, healthy, and very safe week. And we will talk soon. Take care.